welcome to Being with Ron Ash. I'm Ron Ash, your host. We are live and local, national and international on great stations worldwide. For a complete list of our affiliates and showtimes, visit us online at beingwithronash.com. That's beingwithronash.com. Today you are Being with Ron Ash and Bob Luca and Betty Andreas and Luca. Hello, Betty and Bob. Hello. I like the way that doing? sounds, Betty and Bob. <laughs> Betty and Bob are coming over tonight. Uh-huh. Hello to you listeners as well. Exactly. <laughs> oh, this is this is exciting. It's a, it's an exciting book. I mean, it, it, it's a story of uh, alien abduction uh, experience that you have. It has been written so eloquently in this book by Raymond Fowler. Um, tell us a little bit about your story. Well, first of all, Raymond Fowler is a wonderful author. He really Mm -hmm. researches everything. It was because of him and a local group from Massachusetts uh, that got in contact with Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Um, And I had sent a letter to him about three years before, and he filed it away. He had uh, a thing in a a local newspaper that anything unusual or strange, if they would please report it to him. And uh, at that time, uh, my memory had failed for quite a while, but I did remember the strange being, what he looked like and everything. And so what I did and what a little bit what had happened, and so I'm sort of an amateur artist, and I drew a picture of it and Mm -hmm. sent in the information to him. As I said, he filed it away for three years, and then the group from Massachusetts asked for anything with humanoids, uh, if they had anything like that uh, where people reported uh, something happening. And he sent the information to Ray Fowler and the group, and they in turn asked me if I would be willing to undergo regressive hypnosis mm-hmm. to find out what else had happened because I had at that time uh, only the memory of the be- one being and what it looked like with a large, bulbous head, gray skin with the uh, dark black eyes, scary eyes, mm-hmm. and uh, a little bit about them being in my house. And that had gone on for a period of time. What in the world is this? Why do I keep on remembering this? And then when I sent it there, they got, as I said, got in touch with me and regressive hip notion, uh, motion uh, sessions began. And uh, most of the information came out at that time. Where were you living? I was at that time. I was living in Ashburnham, Massachusetts, when okay. I sent the uh, the information to Dr. Heinick. It mm-hmm. was a different place, and the place where I had the adult encounter was in South Ashburnham, Mass. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, so, so Bob, we we did you experience any of this, or you know, what, what's your take on it? Oh no, I, we weren't married at the time. I never met Betty until uh, 1977. Mm-hmm. Um, what we can get into uh, a little later, I'll let her tell you what happened to her in '67. But first, her first experience was in 1944. Okay. My first experience was in 1944. Um, her major adult experience was in 1967. Mayan was in 1967, and at this point we had never met each other. We lived in mm-hmm. different states. I lived in Connecticut. She lived in Mass. But I'll let her tell you what happened in 1967 because that was a major encounter for her. Do you think this had something to do with the two of you being brought together? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, That's well, what it sounds like to me. <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, I'll get into that a little bit on down All the road. Right. How we got in, uh, how we met was very strange and, and uh-huh. prearranged, I'd have to say. Mm-hmm. All right, Betty, take it away. All right. Well, at, uh, I, I think I'll start from the beginning to give your uh, listeners a little bit more understanding of how, how I came to be the, the 1967 encounter. Uh, at seven years old, I was living in Lemonster, Massachusetts, and I was out in the front yard in a little hut my brother had made, and I was eating crackers and waiting for my friend Dee to come over and play dolls. And all of a sudden, it seemed like a bumblebee entered the little hut and was whizzing around my head, but I could 
could see that it was a, a tiny ball of light, and it struck me into in the very center of my head between my eyes, and it felt like it bit and stuck to me. I went over backwards, and I could hear a voices, mm-hmm. one voice, but with many voices in it, and it said, the wee little one is coming along fine. And I asked, where where are you? And uh, they said, oh, we're here. Uh, don't be afraid. And uh, they said that I was going to be very happy very soon. Mm-hmm. Well, then years went by, and at the age of 12, we had then moved, when I was about eight, eight years old, to Westminster, Massachusetts. And while there, it's sort of a farm area. And at 12 years old... I had another experience, and I was a tomboy, and I had gotten a couple of old traps out of a a shack that was on the property, and I remembered where I saw a large hole up in the woods. I sort of, uh, being a tomboy, I was always up in the woods of fishing or out in the water and so forth. So I thought, oh, I think I'll try these traps and see Mm -hmm. what I can catch. And so I put down a trap. And that was the second time that I had an experience. I had gone up after school to check the uh, traps. I picked up some stones along the way, because every time I went in the woods, I didn't know what I would see, and I carried some little stones and everything Mm -hmm. just for protection. And I went to where I had the trap, and all of a sudden it was very strange, because I saw this gray thing coming out of the hole. The trap was gone. Uh, the the wood that it was uh, attached to was knocked down. And as I watched this thing, it looked sort of like one of those gray bee, large bees' nest with wrinkled um, fabric on the bees' nest. And a head came out, and a person, little person, came out dressed in a brown uniform. And uh, it touched something uh, like he had like buttons on his chest he touched something there again a light came out hit me between the eyes and Mm -hmm. i went and it was at that time that i was told that they checked me and i was told that i wasn't ready yet i had another year Mm -hmm. so i after a period of time or when I was 13 years old, I was picked up again. However, this time I was picked up by a moon craft and taken aboard. And it was at that time I was I was given a an implant within mm-hmm. my my eye. They removed my eyeball and uh, put implants within me. And uh, I think they were track uh, something to track me as mm-hmm. I grew. And so anyways, uh, I was taken to see the one at that time. And after I was brought back home, uh, then my life continued on as it was. But the adult encounter was I was married. I already gave birth to seven children. My seven children were growing. Mm-hmm. And my ex-husband, my husband at the time, had had an, a car accident. And he was hospitalized. He was in quite a bad condition. And so I was at home by myself with the seven children. So my mother and father came to stay with me to help out as much as they could. And it was at that time uh, the encounter happened. Uh, We were in the living room. The kids were watching television, and the lights were out. And all of a sudden, a reddish-orange light came drifting through the um, pantry area, through the kitchen, into the living room. Mm-hmm. And we we all thought, uh-oh, there's either a fire or the police are out there, because the reddish, air, uh, reddish light is what we thought was them. Mm-hmm. My father had rushed past me, went into the kitchen, and then into the pantry. And in the pantry, it was like a half pantry, half kitchen. So there was a wall up there. I did not see where my father was. He was actually the first one, Ron, to see mm-hmm. the beings copping down the hill and toward the house. Whoa. And then they came in. Yeah, and, you know, afterwards, uh, the investigators all asked, would your father please be willing to talk with him about it? You know, but he didn't want to get involved, being the man, you know. Yeah. He was afraid of his Social Security being taken from him. And, of course, if it turned into where government 
government would be involved. They would uh-huh. go more for a man than a woman. Yeah. And I said, please, will you please tell what happened to you? I need support because I remembered what had happened. Mm-hmm. I had remembered the lights. I had remembered the beings coming into the home. And so he finally says, okay. So he, he went to the researcher. So they came to him, and he told them exactly what he had seen. Meanwhile, uh, what happened was I was in the kitchen, and five beings entered my home right through the door. They did not open it. They came right through the wooden door and stood before me. And it was amazing. I, you know, I wondered, what in the world is this? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I I felt a little peace come over me, and a uh, scripture came into my mind, entertain the stranger, for it may mm-hmm. be angels unaware. And so I thought, wow, yeah. these must be angels, but they don't look anything like angels <laughs> I've ever seen on pictures. And so they were standing there, and they were in blue suits. They had a, a sash around their their um, uh, waist and mm-hmm. a sash across their chest. They were had large, bulbous heads, gray skin, big, scary black eyes, and they had boots on. Mm-hmm. And when they came in, uh, as I said, I was kind of fearful of what it what it was, but started to come over me when I thought of the scripture that came into my mind. Mm-hmm. And they started to talk with me, but the leader speaking with me was speaking to me through my mind. And it seemed as if they A wanted... A telepathy. Right, like telepathy. And the thing was, is I, I, what I drew from it was that they wanted something to eat. And so I went to the refrigerator, got some meat, got a frying pan, put it on the stove, and I started to cook it. And as I did, a little bit of smoke came up, and the leader jumped back as if something was wrong. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And at that time, I heard him say in my mind, no, 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 we don't want that to eat. We, We are looking for knowledge tried by fire. And the only thing I could think of is knowledge tried by fire that... And the only thing I could think of was the Bible. And uh-huh. I did have one that was on an end table in the living room. And this was my daughter Becky's Bible. My children had gone to the people's church up the street, and each one of them were given a, a Bible when they joined the church. And at that point, we moved into the other room. Now, evidently, uh, one of the beings went over to where my father was in back of the half wall in the pantry and must have been there with him because at that point I only saw the leader and the three beings beside him. Uh And the thing was uh, I reached down for the Bible and I passed it to him. And when he held out his hand, I could see he had three fingers and he raised his other hand over the Bible, and three thinner books appeared, and he passed them to the three that were standing by him. They held them in their hands, and they were much thinner than the regular size of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And the pages just turned one after another after another. However, I did not see any print whatsoever on those uh, smaller books but there was like white light just slipping by. And it seemed as if they were consuming whatever it was with their eyes when they were looking at the thin books. At that point then, uh, I saw my family, my mother and the children sitting on the couch, and he must have known that I was concerned because they weren't moving. And Mm -hmm. uh, the leader, who said his name was Krasgoff, allowed my daughter Becky to come out of that state, and she stood up and just, she couldn't move, but just standing there and watched. And when that exchange of books happened, uh, he gave me a thin blue book, and he said it was like an initiation. Okay. And uh, in this thin blue book, um, there were pictures, and there was unusual writing, not writing that I really understood, but he said that I'd be allowed to keep it for 10 days, and after 10 days, it would be gone. So that's how it all began. 
do you want me to continue to go? Uh, well, let me further? let me ask you a, a few things. Um, sure. Uh, you 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 mentioned a mooncraft came and got you. Yes. What did that look like? That mooncraft. I, I find it, it interesting. It that I guess you, you said mooncraft because you know people use spacecraft, flying flying right. saucer. Well, I've never heard mooncraft. Well, actually, the 1967 uh, was a regular metallic craft, but the moon craft was different. I was only 13 years old at the time, and Mm -hmm. that I don't think is in the Andreessen Affair. It's in the Andreessen Affair Phase 2, that kind of information. But, um, yeah, um, what happened was I got up early in the morning. I wanted to go up in the back of where the garden was to check the blackberries. And there was two hills that uh, rolled up beside the barn one and then the second one. And my father had built steps there. And I started up the stairs, but my attention was turned to the right by a bright light in the sky, and I knew it was the moon. And I thought, what is the moon doing out at this time of day, mm-hmm. early in the morning? Yeah. And it just got brighter. It seemed like it was moving toward me. And, I mean, the moon doesn't move like that, but it seemed like it was moving and the next thing I knew, I was inside a lit room, and mm-hmm. there were small beings that were standing there. You said and that, that they... was the moon. That was the moon craft I was talking about mm-hmm. when I was thirteen. So years it old. looked it looked like the moon. So, well, okay, yeah, so you, right. you said that you were brought to the one. Who could you tell us a little bit about who the one is? Well, you know, this is going to be a difficult thing to do. The investigators tried to get that information from me as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ron, I have had another um, UFO experience, and I think now I know who the, definitely who the one is. Okay. Uh, and this, Bob and I have written uh, a, another book, a sixth book together, and that information will be in there, so it's kind of hard to give that information out until you know others have also seen it. The the one it was bright light most all the time. I was fearful because it was so beautiful and bright each time. I think I've been before the one at least four or five times, and it's always been bright light. I have never seen the face or image of. Uh, the one, except for bright white light and hearing mm-hmm. his voice. So that hmm. is where the moon craft came into. But yeah. it was really the 1967 encounter that I was uh, taken out of my home and brought mm-hmm. before the the metallic craft that was set in the back of the yard. What's so strange is, too, uh, it was just recently that I learned, um, see, I remembered some of the things that the beings had told me about the craft and what it looked like and what they used, and mercury was one of the things. Well, just in this past Thanksgiving, my daughter was over visiting the day before she was going up to her sister's for Thanksgiving. And she happened to mention to me that her and her brother was wondering where the outside entrance was to the the basement of that house in South Ashburnham. So mm-hmm. I told her, and I told her also how we had changed a lot of the interior because we put it up for sale later years. But uh, anyway, she came out, and she said that how she used to play over by the cement foundation. Evidently, there had been a barn or something with the property there. It had been torn down, and half of it had been uh, made into a wooden garage on one the left-hand side, but the other right-hand side was all open, and the kids would always play there, and the neighborhood kids would come over. Well, I learned from my daughter that they found mercury there on the uh, foundation, the uh, cement foundation, some mm-hmm. mercury, and she was playing with it back and oh, forth no. in her hand, shifting it back and forth. I said, what? Mercury? Are you serious? And I said, that's poison. And she says, yeah, we were all playing with it. So to make sure when she was going up to her sister's house, her brother was going to be there and her father was there and her other, her sister, 
and she happened to mention at the table about the mercury and did they remember playing with the mercury and they all said the the children all said yes we did so they never told me when when they were younger because of course they didn't know it was poison yeah you know and then ron uh another strange thing is where the craft had landed in back of the house on the slight hill grass and and uh, seed would not grow there anymore. We thought at first it might be kids uh, passing through to go to school or whatever, but no, it was too large of an area. Mm-hmm. And so evidently either that craft had leaked or discharged some of the mercury, and maybe it wasn't as dangerous after that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But to me, I was shocked just re- recently because of my daughter's uh, statement about it and that was the metallic craft that was a metallic craft now were there were there different beings associated with that craft uh no they well the one uh that i went into when i was 13 years old they were small beings and they uh, had white uh, garments on you know like suits on and Mm -hmm. there were some others that i had seen while I was there as well, some of the regular five-foot ones, yeah. You know, I I never hear stories of alien encounters in which the beings were wearing clothing. Hmm. Right? Really? Oh, my. Yeah. Well, I've never heard of being naked for that. Well, (laughs) maybe maybe I haven't heard enough stories. Probably because uh, they didn't seem to be naked. Where I, each time I saw them, <laughs> I think I'd be more relaxed well if they were clothed. If I ever have an experience, oh gosh! So this is 1967. Um, mm-hmm. So you know there there were people present throughout your experiences. You had family members there. They were actually in some kind of a, a, a state when they came to your house back in the beginning mm-hmm. of the story. Um, when the when the second craft came, the metallic craft came. I mean, there were witnesses to the basically to the mercury afterwards in 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 the children. But did anybody else witness or have memory of uh, the experiences that you're so eloquently sharing with us tonight? Uh, no. Well, Becky did because uh, she was taken out of suspended animation for briefly, yeah. and um, she's had encounters as well. She's had experiences. And, uh, Bob, you said you also had your experience in 1967, correct? Well, the the adult one, yeah. The, um, the, the My actual trip to meet Betty started in 1944. Okay. Um, my dad was overseas, of course. It was during World War II. Um, my mom and I were living at my grandmother's house. My uncles had built me a swing set out in back of the house. And I was as a little kid swinging along and I remembered a very odd light in the sky even uh, as a child I remember this because it was unusual Mm -hmm. and uh, I finally ended up after I met Betty undergoing hypnosis with MUFON and this light came closer and closer it stopped above and to the left of my swing set and a very thin light, uh, about the thickness of a pencil lead, shone out of this object, struck me in the forehead, and I was paralyzed. I couldn't move off of the swing set. This craft was a typical saucer shape with a glass, or something like glass, dome top. As it tipped, from time to time, I could see two of these little gray guys inside, Mm -hmm. um, with the big heads, the black eyes, and so forth. And what they imparted to me in my own mind they said that they were preparing something that would be good for mankind in Uh the future and they also said that people like me and there were many many that they had visited would meet each other in the future and not not be fearful okay so now it's it's a hard thing because i only had the memory of that light but there was some confirmation because during World War II, everybody had a victory garden. We had a victory garden, and where that thing hovered over, nothing would grow for years. Later on, um, when uh, I was being um, examined by MUFON, 
Uh, I was introduced to a psychic that worked with the police and also had worked with the government tracking uh, Soviet submarines. She took my uh, knife that I carried, jackknife that I carried, and w when she related to me what happened, she gave such detail about the pencil thin light and all, and the, the setting, the swing set. And she said, "There's a lot of pipes and vines I see in the yard on the left." So I thought, and this is the first time I met this woman, by the way. So mm -hmm. I thought, "Oh, she's off. She's off. There's no pipes. There's no vines in that yard. You know, I don't remember anything like that." And later on, I had an opportunity to talk to my mother, and she said, oh, yeah, your grandfather had built um, arbors back there for the uh, grapevines. So she knew more than I did at that mm -hmm. point. Well, anyway, we, from then, uh, I didn't have any other experiences that I knew of until 1967. Beautiful, clear day. I'm on my way to the beach. I got to an area known as a trap rock where there was a quarry and there was a railroad spur going into it. There's five guys working on this railroad spur, only they're all looking up in the air. They're not working. So I look up, and I see two cigar-shaped, huge cylinder, shiny craft. Now, it it's hard to describe, but if you can imagine highly polished chrome reflecting in the sunlight, that's what they look like. They're extremely bright. Now, I'd always been interested in technical things, airplanes, cars, so forth. So, obviously, these were not airplanes. They had no wings. They had no tail section. They had made no noise, no exhaust, no contrail. So I pulled my car over to watch, and uh, one of them, from the direction from where I was, was heading toward New Haven, Connecticut, where both of the large objects were. But two smaller objects dropped out of them, saucer-shaped objects. One went toward New Haven. And the other one went in the opposite direction. So I watched till they were all out of sight, thinking, wow, this is really something unusual. Started on my way to the beach again. I got down the road a few miles, and one of the saucer-shaped ones was coming back. And it stopped. It came down, floated like a leaf back and forth, stopped several feet off the ground. Now, all this is conscious memory. I'm looking at this thing. And all of a sudden, there was a brilliant flash of very intense red light, almost like a ruby ray laser would be the only thing I could compare it to. And somehow I was inside this this craft. And behind me was one of these little gray guys, and he also, uh, like Betty's, had clothes on, but it was a skin-tight uniform that was red, and they had a lightning bolt insignia on the left side of the chest. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I was asked asked or told to remove my clothing, which I did, for pretty much out of fear. At this time, I'm not going to kid you, I was scared crapless. I mean, Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Simple as that. They put me on a table that I was probably plexiglass or something similar. They examined me from head to foot. They took scrapings of my skin, scrapings of my nails. Uh, they moved my ankles around my head. At, at this time, I know this table was highly unusual. There were no straps, no restraints, and yet it was almost like somebody just super glued me to it. I couldn't mm -hmm. move anything except my head and my eyes a little bit. They gave me an exam. Uh, they, they took sperm also. I was scanned with something like an x-ray machine, but this thing actually emitted a pinkish-white light that was uh, almost like, if you can imagine, a sparkler. It seemed like the light actually jumped out of this thing. And it scanned my body several times. That concluded their examination of me. Uh, I was put back into my vehicle on my way to the beach, and when I got to the beach, which should have been about a 30-minute ride from where I was, uh, I lost almost two and a half to three hours. And wow. for years, I never knew what had happened to that time. And the seeing the craft and all, I only told uh, my parents and my best friend, because in 1967, you talk like that, and, you know... I, oh, I yeah, people to... think you're insane. Something's wrong with you. Yeah, I didn't no. want to end up with a psychiatrist's office. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that 
that started my journey to meet Betty. Now, we'll move up 10 years to 1977. Okay. I was single. I had a, a really good job. I was a service manager for a new car dealership. Mm-hmm. I had a, a, a great salary. I had a new car, a demo every three months, uh, an expense account for my gas and whatnot. And I was uh, always a hard worker. Well, a friend of mine, Eddie, mentioned that he would like to take a trip and maybe look for employment in other parts of the country because we, uh, we were living in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So I said, sure, why not? So I went to my boss. I, um, I had a travel trailer, and I went into my boss on Friday, and I told him, you know, I said, I'd, I'd like a month off. Well, that didn't go over too big. No, the, the, in the car industry, that's unheard of. <laughs> You yeah, if you get so, a day off in the rope. He, he says, no, no, he says, I, I can't do that. Well, I went home and I thought about it over the weekend, mm-hmm. and I went back in Monday, and I said, Bob, his name was Bob also. I said, Bob, I, I, there's three three things we can do here. I said, I, uh, you can let me go, I can quit, or you can fire me, but I'm going. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know why it I didn't know why at that time I did that, because that's just not me. I was always a hard worker, and, and you know, I was at work every day. So I put my job at risk to take this trip. Well, it's probably a knowing, some type of knowing. You knew you had to do it. Right. Well, Eddie and I went on a trip. We've been down through Texas and out to California and Washington State, and we were headed back to Connecticut across the northern tier of the country. Mm -hmm. We stopped at a rest area. And we decided on the spur of the moment, we're going to Florida. Now, this is several thousand miles out of our way mm-hmm. to go back to Connecticut. So, okay, we no argument at all. We just both decided to go. We get to Florida, and we stopped at uh, my uh, Eddie's sister-in-law had a place in uh, Florida in Pompano. We pulled our camp trailer and everything onto her property. And the second night we were there... Uh, she was telling me about this woman that she worked with that had had a UFO experience. And I said, wow, that's great. I said, I'd like to talk to her because, like I said, I'd been bottled up for 10 years with nobody yeah. to talk to about this. I didn't want to be ridiculed or whatever at the time. So I went down to talk to Betty, and she wouldn't talk to me because Ray Fowler said, you know, the reporters are going to be after you about this and all, and don't say a word. So it it took me a while. I finally convinced her. I said, okay, look, I'm not a reporter. I said, how about we have lunch tomorrow, and, and I just want to talk to you. So the next day, finally, I, we went out. I bought her lunch. I've been buying that lunch ever since that time. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, had I known then, and this is what we get into later, once I got involved with her, uh-huh. how my life would change and how much harassment we would receive from the government and other things. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't have bought that lunch at the time. <laughs> I would have had to think about it. You can't go against what God has planned. Yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, <clears throat> once the the uh, first book came out, The Andreasen Affair, mm-hmm. just before it was published, we started noticing flights of black helicopters over our house. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's kind of unusual because they didn't seem to have any ID numbers, and they were all military. Um, In the very beginning, it was almost all Huey UH-1s. Well, I wrote Ray Fowler, and he said, well, you know, you're probably just in a flight path. I said, I don't think so. And the flights got so often and sometimes so low that they rattled the windows and everything to the point where our next-door neighbor, who was a city councilwoman, started to document the flights. Mm-hmm. Well, we were there in that house. We moved in a year. We moved from Meriden, Connecticut, to Cheshire, Connecticut. The book was out. Uh, Betty and I were doing uh, television and radio and so forth, and then all hell broke loose. The uh, telephone was tapped. We started to be followed. Mm-hmm. Um, by some government agency, I don't know which, but it, it, the reason I can say that is, as a young fellow, I used to build race cars and race on the road because there was no racetracks near anywhere near where I lived. 
and I got pretty good at it. So a few times when these cars were following us, I actually got behind them and got the license plates. Mm -hmm. And we gave them to uh, Police Lieutenant Larry Fawcett, who was also a UFO investigator. And when he ran the plates, they came back as unissued. So, okay, you got a government agency there. There's pretty much no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. Now, the helicopters uh, started to overfly our house well, several times a week, and sometimes low enough, without exaggerating, I could take a baseball and whack them. wouldn't wouldn't be a problem at all. That's pretty close. Oh, oh yeah. Well, they had an altitude. Well, you're an incredible uh, baseball player. One or yeah, the other. No, no I'm not. <laughs> uh, but see, at the time, I was taking uh, my own lessons for my pilot's license, so I knew the rules and regulations. And the and the thing was, a helicopter. Yeah, they can fly low, but they have to maintain 500 feet laterally between buildings, and that's mm -hmm. federal aviation regulations. Yeah. These things went right over the roof of our house at 75 to 100 feet at the lowest uh, altitudes. I tracked them. Uh, I took hundreds of photos of them. I went to the FAA, the Army, the Air Force, the FBI, the CIA, the helicopter manufacturers, and when I sent pictures to the FAA, this is almost comical. I, I looked to them to, for identification. And they wrote back and said, well, we can't identify these aircraft because they have no ID numbers. Mm -hmm. Well, duh, that's why I was writing to them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, but here's where it gets interesting. I knew that the Huey UH-1s were made by Bell Helicopter in Texas. Mm -hmm. So I wrote their public relations man, whose name was Richard Tipton. And I sent him a picture, and he sent me back a letter, and he says, he gave me the model number. This is, a, I think, a UH-1H-B or something like that. I still have the letter. And he said, I don't have any pictures of these because these never left here in this fashion. He said these were modified by the Air Force for psychological warfare in Vietnam. So why do we have helicopters like that tracking Betty and I? Mm -hmm. Now, it wasn't just at our house. When we vacationed in Florida, our niece and nephew who lived there said they knew when we were coming because they'd see the helicopters before we got there. When we vacationed in New Hampshire, it was the same thing. It was a method of, for them of intimidation to try to get us not to talk. Uh-huh. Uh, when we were on Route 2, very rural route in uh, Massachusetts, we're driving along, and they came up right from a field next to us and passed over our car at an altitude of about 30 feet. I mean, that's intimidating. Mm -hmm. Now, for a little, a little more confirmation here, Betty and I were doing a lecture in Phoenix, Arizona. During a break... This fellow approached me, and to me, he was obviously military. I mean, he had uh, close crop, uh, short uh, hair. The buttons on his shirt were lined up exactly with the center of his belt. His pants were uh, crisp uh, crease in them, highly polished black shoes. And he told me, he says, we're only sending the helicopters so we don't have to hurt you. That was wow. his exact. That was his exact words. So it didn't phase us much because... Uh, Betty's got a lot of faith in God, and I do too, mm -hmm. but also I have a sense of humor. So a friend that I worked with uh, was had gotten out of the military, and he says, Bob, I can build you an exact replica of a surface-to-air missile. So I said, great. Well, he built it, and I took it home when it was done, and sure enough, about a day, two days later, we hear the familiar wop, wop, wop of the Huey mm -hmm. uh, rotor blades. Well, the man with the chopper was approaching the house from the north. So we took the missile and we set it up on the south side of the house. Now, I had flown over our house myself, and I knew exactly what he could see from where he okay. was. He could not see this thing until he almost cleared our roof. So as the thing was approaching, we were watching this black Huey helicopter when he cleared the roof, we were looking at the side of the helicopter. All of a sudden, we were looking at the bottom of it. He whipped that thing around in such a sharp right-hand turn. It was an evasive maneuver. He yeah. obviously was looking in the yard. 
So, you know, we got a chuckle out of it. I told my wife, I said, I bet you this guy is going back where he came from, get himself a shower and a change of clothes about <laughs> No doubt, but, no doubt. You know, You're putting fuel th- on the fire there. Well, you know, one one thing I want to say that I hold, you know, I have no ill will to end for any of these guys that are yeah. flying the helicopters. What they're doing, what they're ordered to. That's right. So you know, but we had a little fun with them on more than mm-hmm. one occasion. Um, now we get to another thing. They started taking pictures wherever we were, mm-hmm. and. Like Betty's in a store with a big glass window in the front. And I'm, I'm gonna, a guy comes along. He's actually got his legs out on the skids of the helicopter and mm-hmm. taking pictures of her. Uh, we were at a campground in Florida, Fort Christmas, beautiful campground, a lot of pines, beautiful place. And we pulled our trailer into an area. We got a lot, and there was a, a clearing. Oh, I don't know, maybe. Uh, pay 75 foot in diameter or so and we were in, almost at the edge of that clearing a small helicopter comes in a one-man uh, military observation craft like a bubble on the front and the guy's taking pictures of us so i quick ran and got my camera and i took pictures of him taking pictures of us <laughs> so you know it, it was like a cat and mouse game yeah yeah but, why do you, why do you think that is why do you think they're following you is could it be that they they are aware of your connection to these aliens and they want to learn more. Maybe they want to be around the next time they come. Are they picking up on some type of tracking device that? Uh, oh, absolutely, like... absolutely. Um, don't forget, this is 1977. We're talking about not yeah. today. <laughs> so I'm I'm going to give you an example of how well they were able to track us. Uh, Betty and I were at the house of a psychologist in um, Connecticut. And we were giving a private lecture. Betty had just finished her talk, and I started to talk about the surveillance and the helicopters. Mm-hmm. I didn't get two minutes into it when a black Huey came around this house. Now, it was raining out, and not a good day for flying. came around the house low enough that the windows in the house were rattling, and there was about 20 people there. Everybody saw this helicopter as it went around the house. Okay, so you say, hmm coincidence a few weeks later we're doing a lecture for a dentist in new haven um, new britain connecticut but he finishes her talk i start to talk about their surveillance boom same thing the black huey uh shows up goes around that house the people see it a few weeks later the exact same thing when we were doing a lecture for a contractor in meriden connecticut so they knew where we were Basically, at all times, they, I think what they wanted was to know how much of the technology Betty had seen, because as an artist with an eye for detail, oh yes, that's she right. She drew everything that she saw inside the craft, and they showed her the whole propulsion system. Mm-hmm. Now, they also broke into our house on two different homes on two different occasions. Uh, one place we lived, they broke into, and the only thing that was stolen was some of the drawings that Betty had made of the interior of the craft. Mm-hmm. Now, in the residence, there were jewelry, cameras, computers, firearms. Nothing was touched, mm-hmm. just those documents. So it was a rural, uh, rural area, so we had to call the state police and to come up and do a report. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was a young fella, and we told him straight out that we believed that it was a government agency, and he saw the damage he had to do a report because I had to replace the door. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> what happened was he said, if I find out anything, I will definitely let you know. So I said, great. Well, a few days later, maybe about a week, I went down to the office, and there was another trooper there, so I asked for this particular trooper, and he said he'd been transferred. I said, well, where has he been transferred to? Oh, I don't know. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, remember I said that I had checked and written and sent photographs to the FAA regarding the helicopters? Mm-hmm. A man named Sam Martino, who worked for the FAA, 
General Aviation District Office in Boston, was interested enough to come down on his own time on a Saturday, and unfortunately he came unannounced and we weren't home, but he did leave a note on our door. Uh, a couple of years later, Connecticut Magazine did an article on us, and they tracked him down, and he said, well, he only had a, a vague memory about uh, some complaint about seeing a helicopter that didn't have numbers, but it could have been the lighting or whatnot. Well, that was bull, because it wasn't the lighting, because I had hundreds of photographs, mm-hmm. and I had the note that he left on the door. One of the other tactics that they used was the Internal Revenue Service. We had uh, an audit a year for the first, I think it was three or four years. And the first audit, the questions they asked Betty was, what what did you see in there? What did it look like? What did the craft look like? And so kind of unusual questions for an IRS audit. Now, what happened as we got into this, I started to get angry because in the beginning we looked to the government for answers. Mm-hmm. And not only the answers weren't coming, they were trying to make us look silly. Which, yeah. You know, the the policy back then was to, to ridicule uh, people that had seen things like this. So we went into kind of attack mode. Uh, I had many conversations with the Pentagon, with Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, I tried to get a an interview with the CIA. They wouldn't talk to me. Um, uh, NASA, the Pentagon finally told me that no one there would talk to me. And by the way, I taped these conversations, so I still have them today. Um, and I didn't mind taping them because they were tapping our phone, so I figured one could turn deserved another. <laughs> so, um, but... They resorted to so many different things, like we were uh, on a trip to Florida, and spur of the moment, we decided to pull into this KOA campground, Mm -hmm. which we did. Now, nobody knew we were there, nobody. And yet the campground manager came down and said to Betty that her son had called. That was impossible because... Mm -hmm son didn't know where we were so this is their way of kind of letting you know that hey you know we know where you are we know what you're doing you know and and it's effective because i i have you know i i deal with a lot of this stuff and i have this recurring issue that my luggage is always being searched i i ship i i'm in florida Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm yeah. in Rhode Island sometimes when I if I have books and I'm going to I'm going to uh, interview you know various authors on these types of things uh, miraculously the box that contains all those books is always the one that never gets here. Mhm. Exactly. Exactly. They 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 want to know what you know but the the worst thing that that they did to us um back in the 80s when we were we were living in Cheshire, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I woke up about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I heard two distinct male voices talking in our kitchen, uh, mm-hmm. which was just, there was a, our bedroom, then a little hallway, then the kitchen. And I looked toward the bottom of the bed. We had a lot, rather large dog, about a 100-pound German Shepherd, and he would always let us know if someone was there. The dog tried to get up, and his front paws went out from under him, and he went right flat down on his face. So I said, oh, this is not good. Mm-hmm. I reached in my nightstand to get a, I had a 38 in there, and I was going to confront these guys. Well, <clears throat> the next thing I knew, it was morning, and I had a wicked, I mean a really bad headache, and Betty said she did too. Well, we didn't think too much of it, but we, we went to work that day uh, to our respective jobs. We came home. And she said that her left arm has been hurting her all day, and she's right-handed. And I said, wow, that's funny, because my right arm has been hurting me all day, and I'm left-handed. So we took off our shirts, and on the left arm, in the area where you normally would get a vaccination, mm-hmm. uh, there was a approximately an inch and a quarter diameter black and blue mark with a puncture mark right in the very center of it. Mm-hmm. I had the exact same thing on wow. my right arm. So, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
so we're, we're getting down to the end of the program. Um, oh. The okay. Andreasen affair, a true story of a close encounter of the fourth kind. What would, what do you really want your readers to get out of this book? I mean, it's it's packed with all kinds of dialogue from your experiences. There are photos in here as well, uh, well of the aliens hoping, and the people involved. What, what do you really want to? I'm uh, hoping that they, uh, people that are having experiences, uh, that they will read them and realize we have lived through this. They will mm-hmm. also. Uh, yeah. Things are happening for a reason. Uh, it, it's all in God's hands. Uh, yeah, yeah, and they shouldn't be afraid to come forward and tell it. That will release it from them so they won't feel that heaviness of of having to bear something that was unusual and they can't say about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will. I think that will help. I, I was told in the 1967 I was chosen to show the world something, and that's what I thought at first it was for me to mm-hmm. explain what happened to me. But I think it's more than that. And hopefully this book that Bob and I are doing together will maybe help in some way. I, I'm feeling I, that they're here to help mankind move forward into our, our, our next dimension, our next yes. chapter. Yes, very much so, yes. All right, well, uh, Betty and Bob, Luca, thank you for joining us today. The book is The Andreasen Affair, and uh, you can learn about Betty, Bob, and the book, and all of our guests, past, present, and future, at beingwithronash.com. That's beingwithronash.com. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you all on the radio real soon. Be peace, everyone, because peace becomes you. Peace.